Welcome, viewers and listeners, to the Total Football Analysis EPL Podcast. We are the Thinking Fans Podcast. Each week, we get together with our besties, who are current pro players, real coaches, academics, and stat heads. In the end, we want to provide thoughtful, hot takes about football. Today, I'm joined by coach, if I believe it will happen, David Seymour from London, and analyst, get her done, Harshel Patel from Calcutta. In addition, I'm joined by Sam Brotherton, a killing you softly with his long diagonal passes, professional center back from North Carolina FC. Finally, I'm joined by DJ Taylor, I think, therefore I assist, outside back for North Carolina FC. I'm host, Chris Mumford, known as The Professor. Bella Ciao. During the third week of the restart, teams have had mixed results. A combination of yowzas and what just happened? Questions will be asked. Liverpool had a ho-hum week. Man City scored 10 and gave up no goals. Chelsea got a reality check. Man U turned into the Mason Greenwood show. Leicester righted the ship. And Sheffield may be the real deal. The Wolves changed from the hunter to the prey. Has Tottenham turned a corner? Meanwhile, the relegation story crystallized with the inevitable demotion of Norwich. All but inevitable fall of Bournemouth and Aston Villa. Not all dreams come true. So let's get started with the Arsenal-Leicester game, where Leicester... uh, dominated possession at 63%. And they also uh, had 82% um, passing accuracy, while Arsenal only had 68%. Leicester had 13 shots compared to Arsenal's 11, and Leicester had five shots on gold compared to Arsenal's five. The expected goals, Leicester was one and Arsenal 1.29. The finish was 1-1. David, walk us through uh, what you thought were the interesting aspects of this match. Yeah, I think, I think yeah, spot on with what you say. Um, Leicester definitely did dominate possession. When you talk about the, the passing statistics there, um, what that's often caused by, obviously, is as they dominate possession, there's going to be a lot more shorter passes. They're going to circuit the ball a lot more. So these are high percentage passes. And with Arsenal playing generally more on the counter, um, there'll be more direct passes, slightly more risky passes, probably hence why um, those stats are the way they are. Um, yeah, I think Arsenal had actually the better the better quality of chances just, and I, obviously the XG just about shows that up as well. Um, I think the big talking point was, of course, the Enkitia red card, which was unfortunate. I don't think there was any malice in it, but I mean, that, that's a, a leg breaker uh, challenge. So he had, to, he had to be sent off, and obviously there was questions over whether Vardy should have been on the pitch. Um, in terms of uh, the goals, uh, Saka continues to impress as well. He's got an assist for Aubameyang and um, Damari Gray got a really nice assist. He's someone who probably needs to make a move to sort of restart his career. I'm not sure if he has a massive future at Leicester, but unbelievable assist from him to set up Vardy. Um, he, play, he played a, a cross that you would sort of sit, well, not really a cross, but a through pass from the wider area that you'd often see from Alexander-Arnold or um, De Bruyne. Mm-hmm. Different class, uh, being able to thread the ball in behind the Arsenal defence from that angle. Uh, Attack wise, I mean, it was interesting. You saw Leicester sit in uh, in a really compact press with a front three, and then Tillemans and Ndidi sat very narrowly just behind them in this uh, compact five. And at first, Arsenal struggled to, to break that down and struggled to get any real quality possession, and they were forced to. Uh, turn over the ball a bit higher than they perhaps wanted to. But what we saw as the game progressed was that uh, Kalasnach was playing on the left side of the back three, uh, pushed up into a more orthodox left-back position, and Tierney pushed on. Now, with Leicester's compact five, what we saw was the wing-backs would, would, as soon as the balls worked wide, the wing-backs would push up. So you saw James Justin or Albrighton pushing up to pressure in the wide areas. But with Tierney pushing on higher, he was able to pin back Justin. And at the same time, we saw Xhaka and, um, who was that? Maybe Ceballos? Was it Ceballos? I can't remember. Their two central midfielders dropped in um, really deep. And you saw them have a 6v5, and then they were able to progress the ball a bit better. So that was really interesting to see tactics-wise. But um, 
yeah, I think on the balance, balance of things, 1-1 one, one was probably a fair result. Sam, what's your take on the match? Yeah, I agree. It was probably a, a fair result at the end of the day. Um, I think Arsenal right now, they're looking really exciting going forwards. Obviously, like you said, Zach is impressing as a young player. Um, Aubameyang and Lacazette are scoring goals. Um, I think it's just their, their Achilles heel that we, we kind of always come back to talk about as the defence. Um, yeah, I thought I agree with you, Nikidia. I don't think there was any malice or intent in that challenge, but it's a red card. Um, it comes down to kind of discipline at the end of the day, and they concede the late goal, and they, they lose two points. Uh, we saw again today that that defensive kind of uh, underbelly of them is a little soft, and they just, I think, as exciting as they are going forwards, they're never going to be able to put a great season together or a great run of results together until they solve their defensive issues. I don't want to turn this into the VAR show, but I, I don't know if you guys saw the Burnley-West Ham game. Like it was like a day or two after that game, and James Tarkovsky did a pretty similar tackle on Jared Bowen, and he got a yellow card. He didn't get red. punished with a yellow. I don't think Michael Oliver went to VAR, and I've got issues with Michael Oliver as a referee and just dealing with VAR in general. So I wasn't surprised. But I don't know if you guys saw that tackle as well. Anyone? Maybe no. Maybe but I do think you bring up a great point. I mean, with with VAR. I, I imagine officiating is going to have to adapt, right? Because video don't lie. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see in the next season how things start to evolve. Um, you know, in, in other leagues, handballs have been a, a ginormous issue, um, particularly in, in Serie A. And I just have to imagine because of VAR, uh, there's going to have to be some changes to the rules. Whether they get done in the four-week four offseason uh, may be a little aggressive. But we'll see what happens. So, just, uh, sorry, Chris, just to jump in on the VAR stuff that we're talking about. So, I don't know if you saw if, uh, if this came to your notice, everybody else as well. But I think um, it's the IFAB, which is the, the <clears throat> sorry, the rule setting body of the of world football, and they've said that um, they're going to sort of take over or they're going to sort of. Uh, give guidelines to the Premier League as well in terms of how to use VR because uh, the way in which the Premier League has been using VR has been quite different from how other European leagues have been implementing it. So they want a, a uniform approach, and they're going to do. And I'm not sure if that's going to happen in time for sort of this season to go on. Uh, I mean, the remaining matches that we have for this season. But it's interesting as well because one thing which I really want to see is uh, the referee being allowed to go over to the monitor on the far side of the pitch and view. Sort of, and basically the VR telling you know what you should just go and have a look at that again and see um, if you have another opinion because I think that's only allowed for um, red card offenses or potential red card offenses at the moment. But even for other stuff like handballs and uh, which have been really contentious, it'll be great if the referee himself can go and see that rather than having the VR make a subjective call on top of already a call that's subjective. You know, right? From a player's perspective, uh, DJ, what, what what would your is your take on? the ref being able to uh, go to the side of the uh, field and, and look on a screen? For me, I think it kind of goes both ways, you know. Once you, if, as a player, you know, there's players that do malicious things, there's players that obviously want to also get away with it. So I think it goes both ways, you know. I think moving forward with the game, I think it, the ref should be allowed to go to the side and review it. So I think a lot of stuff happens where refs don't make the right call or they don't see it and they just say play on and you as a player just have to deal with that yeah. or decision you made. So I think... And so also it'll stop it'll stop a lot of diving that's been going on through a lot of leagues too. You know, the attacker, especially as a defender, for me, I know for Sam too, it's annoying when, you know, you get called a PK for a dive that you didn't do anything. You didn't even touch the guy. So uh, I think it's it's going in the right direction, but I, I agree. I think ref should be able to definitely on the side. Super. Well, let's turn our attention to the uh, Sheffield United and the Wolves game, uh, in which that one, unsurprisingly, the Wolves dominated. Uh, possession at 57%. In terms of shots, um, Sheffield had six and the Wolves had, I'm sorry, Sheffield had seven and the Wolves had six. Uh, Sheffield had three shots on goal and the Wolves had one shot on goal uh, with a resounding expected goals of 0.47 for Sheffield and 0.33 for the Wolves. So sounds like a, not a lot of goal um, scoring opportunities. The game did end, of course, 1-0 Sheffield. Um, Harshal, what's what's your take on on the match? Yeah, you're right, Chris. Not really too much um, goal scoring action, but it was interesting because you saw two teams which have a similar sort of system go against each other. I mean, 
Um, Sheffield United have obviously uh, been playing a back three all of uh, this season, even last season in the championship. And Wolves, ever since they've come up under Nuno, they've also largely, I think, uh, have played the, a back three. So it was interesting to see these two teams come up against each other and their interpretations of the system. Because even though they obviously play with the back three, they don't play the same way. And uh, I think Sheffield United did a good job of shutting down Wolves in the sense that uh, the way so Wolves basically lined up with the two central midfielders in Neves and uh, Moutinho, which were uh, so it was the sort of three five two three if you want to put it that way uh, in terms of how the defenders and the midfielders lined up, whereas Sheffield United were in their usual three four uh, three I guess or you want to I mean not a three four three a three five two yeah so. They had the three in the middle uh, and that sort of midfield configuration was able to dominate Bulls midfield because Bulls are really reliant on Neves and Moutinho to progress the ball into Jimenez who's the central striker of uh, in that system. And Sheffield United didn't allow that to happen because uh, Sanderberg and Oliver Norwood would be pushing on to, uh, on to, Bull, uh, to Neves and Moutinho and that would leave Ben Osgood free and he would then drop in whenever... Uh, Raul Jimenez would look to drop in to uh, receive the ball. And it's it's really illust- illustrating that um, I think Moutinho only managed to pass to Jimenez once in the entire game and Neves also I think had about two or three passes to Jimenez in the entire match. And that shows you how well that, that sort of creative side of things was shut down by Sheffield United. And then they imposed their sort of um, system on Wolves because we all know that they like to build up down the wide areas and they have the overlapping center halves and that sort of wide combination play that they were doing was able to sort of push the Wolves wing backs um, back uh, you know into their own middle third or defensive third and they weren't really able to affect the game going forwards as much as they would have liked so um, as we'll see later on as well with the Chelsea game as well I think Sheffield United have really um, pulled themselves back in the last sort of couple of weeks and they've got a couple of really good results and they're pushing uh, for Europe once again and the goal was scored in at at in the ninety second minute. Um, what happened in that situation? So I mean, it was basically a set piece situation that that Sheffield United took advantage of. So again, I'd, I'd give props to the coaching and the and the way that that uh, the entire situation was drilled so that they could get that goal. But. As you said earlier, there wasn't really too much goal-scoring action. The two teams were sort of effectively cancelling each other out. But I was more impressed by Sheffield United than Wolves because I thought Wolves could have really done a lot better than what they did. I think had they maybe tweaked their formation and had Dendonka play in midfield as well and play with midfield three instead of the two central midfielders, it might have been a better sort of uh, tactical battle or it might have been better for Wolves in that sense. And remind me, which position does Egan play? He's a centre-back. Centre-back, which gets me to Sam. Uh, how on earth is it that it seems like centre-backs are starting to steal the, the limelight in some of these finishes uh, in, in, in some of these matches? And then I'm just curious, you know, you are uh, uh, basically a, a Secretary of Defence. How is it that Sheffield United is just freaking so stingy on their defence? And it's not like they have you know, $15 million or $50 million signings in that back line. What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously these players uh, kind of didn't come to the Premier League with, with high value, but I think players like John Egan um, have had great seasons. I think they're really going to raise their value. And um, yeah, they're really great players, but they're also playing in, in a great system. Um, the manager has them super organized. I think they all have really clearly defined uh, roles and responsibilities within the team. I think when you play that, Back three, back five, that's especially important. Um, they all cover each other. They all back each other up. They're all just they, – they, they're, they're so well-drilled. They know what they're doing. Um, yeah, I think, like like Harshaw said, Sheffield United's had a really good week. I'd be interested to know some kind of the XG and, and the stats on that because I think their effectiveness is just amazing. They seem to be so efficient when they go forward and then they're just really hard to score against. They're hard to break down. Um, they don't give opposition teams kind of time and space on the ball and they, they're really compact and they stay together defensively. So, yeah. Um, they're a really well-drilled team, and I mean, they've, they've been a surprise of the season, if you ask me. So, I'd ha- I need to double-check the numbers on this, but I think sh- the three in the back line of Arsenal cost more than the entire Sheffield United team. I, I mean, I don't get it. Arteta is a, a, a great coach. They're playing a three-back system. 
How is it that things are so disorganized at a place like Arsenal and so tight at a place like Sheffield, which one could argue has lesser talent? Um, and maybe that's not a good argument, but any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think just because a player has a higher price tag on, a, on, his, uh, on his head doesn't necessarily mean he's a better player, which first and foremost is very important. Um, I think the system is also an important consideration. Arteta, a player like David Luiz, is obviously very focused on his, his range of passing, playing out of the back, which is, is no bad thing. That's obviously an attractive side of the game. But I think Chris Wilder has really emphasized the basics of the game, um, defending, being disciplined, uh, being, being compact, and uh, staying, staying tight in your shape. So, yeah, I think, uh, I don't know, I'd say it's down to a lot of the, the management, what they're being told. Um, kind of the culture and the, the tactics, tactical approach of the team. It's it's hard to say. Um, yeah. Okay. Also, also worth pointing out that Sheffield United have been playing a, a back three since 2015. So, right. I mean, they've just got that much more familiarity with the system. I think uh, people balk at the idea when they first see a playing with a back three because it looks so different. But it, it's not, but it's, it takes time and it's not, it's not necessarily something that I would look to introduce halfway through the season. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, I think you're going to see, if they continue with it, I think they're only going to get better. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think understanding the system is super important. Um, there's times where I've been kind of told to, to switch to a back three all of a sudden, and it's difficult, you know. It's a, it's very, it's a very different formation. Um, as a centre-back, you have hugely different responsibilities. So it's definitely something that you need to practice on the training ground, and, and it comes with time, like David says. Um, the more games you play in that formation and alongside the same players, is definitely going to help your understanding. Nice. Well, let's shift our attention to the next match uh, in the uh, David Seymour universe, probably the match of the week, uh, <laughs> could be of the, of the entire season. But that would be the Norwich-West Ham uh, game, of which uh, Norwich had 53% possession, uh, and Norwich also had 11 shots compared to West Ham's 19. Um, so there were 30 shots taken in this match. Norwich had two on frame while he's at West Ham had seven. Uh, and it was pretty fascinating. Three first half goals uh, of which Norwich had a 0.61 expected goals and West Ham had a 3.81. Final score, 0-4 Norwich-West Ham. And David, this had a, a special characteristic this game. Can you elaborate more on that? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, as you said, it wasn't like West Ham dominated the game, uh, particularly in the first half. I thought it was relatively open. I think West Ham looked more dangerous, but Norwich had some chances. They were more sort of half chances, but they certainly had some. And West Ham went two up just before half time, So that, I think, just killed them off, really. I mean, I think what was interesting uh, for me to see was that defensively Norwich were really poor. And... Everyone's been expecting Norwich to go down for some time now. And people are continuously talking about Ben Godfrey, Max Ahrens, Jamal Lewis, players in that back line that they think Premier League clubs might be looking to, to sign. And of course, it's not just down to the back four, but they look really, really suspect um, at the back, particularly in the second half. I mean, one of Antonio's goals, uh, I want to say it was the third. My, my, actually, I think it was the fourth, but he, he just jogged across to the front post. And the centre-back's positioning, it was, they were closed off. He wasn't marked. He was able to tap home from, from three, four yards away. So that was concerning, I think, for, for, for Norwich. I mean, it was, for West Ham point of view, it was a massive win. I think if we hadn't won that, then uh, it would have been, been a very tense end to the season. With Villa winning today, things potentially get a little bit more complicated, but I'd still uh, fancy West Ham to stay just because of their goal difference as well. Right. But, um, yeah, I mean... Antonio obviously dub- doubled his tally for the season. Uh, he's only one of 27 players to score four goals in a uh, single game in the Premier League. And the yeah. first since Salah did in 2018 uh, against Watford. So, and, and also some of the company that he's in there. I mean, Henri, Owen, Kane, Shearer, you name it. There's uh, top players who have done that. So it wasn't something I expected Mikel Antonio to do. It was a bit of a bizarre game a bizarre set of circumstances but certainly welcome right well uh i i think it was uh antonio fc versus norwich and it was truly a super a superman performance that i imagine he's going to be enjoying for the rest of his life so um 
probably never have to buy a beer in, in West Ham again after after a performance like that, or in, in London, I should say. So um, let's turn our attention to the Sheffield United-Chelsea uh, match, of which Chelsea absolutely dominated possession at 76%. Um, and there were um, – Chelsea had 15 shots on goal – I mean, 15 shots, and Sheffield United had um, nine, of which Chelsea had four on frame, as well as Sheffield United had four. Uh, expected goals was 1.18 for Chelsea and 2.01 for Sheffield United. Of course, the outcome was 3-0 Sheffield United. Um, Harshel, help us unpack this game. Yeah, um, and as we were saying earlier, this result, I, I mean, I can't say I was expecting this emphatic a win for Sheffield United or a win at all. Chelsea had been on a really good run of form since the restart. Um, but I think there were a lot of, um, there were a couple of factors which played in here. I think one thing was that Lampard hasn't really rotated his team. Um, the only changes that he's made uh, have been injury enforced. So you, I think there was a bit of fatigue that we saw, that could be seen, especially in the likes of William and Tristan Pulisic, who've taken a lot of the creative burden for Chelsea since the restart. So I think there's something where he might need to change there. But in terms of, um, if you want to talk about the tactics of the game, I think uh, it started off, like Sheffield United started off really well. They were they, they managed to put themselves into a bit of a low block where and uh, Chelsea weren't really able to. And Chelsea, uh, I mean, Chelsea's passing was really slow. We've been used to a higher tempo of passing from Chelsea this season, but um, Sheffield United were able to sort of slow the tempo of the game down to suit them, where they were able to get enough bodies back. Excuse me, uh, enough bodies back so that uh, Chelsea weren't really able to open them up. Them up, and they also weren't able to sort of progress the ball as much as they they'd like. And uh, we, I think Lampard was proactive. He made a switch at halftime. He went to a back three as well at halftime. He brought on uh, he brought on Rudiger and Alonso. And moved to a back three. He took off uh, Christensen and I believe uh, it was uh, Mason Mount. Yes, so he took off Christensen and Mason Mount. So, but by that by then Chelsea were already. I mean, sorry, Sheffield United were already leading. And even though that sort of that when they did go to a back three, he brought on Olivier Olivier Giroud as well. That sort of period coincided with Chelsea's best uh, spell of the game. But there was another tactical change, but then completely un unbalanced things. He, Chelsea moved to 4 to 4, and that completely unbalanced things. And then Chelsea were caught on the break for the last goal. And uh, there were a lot of defensive errors from Chelsea. Um, if you look at the third goal, Jorginho lets uh, McGoldrick just run past him. Um, and then uh, Zuma doesn't go out to, to sort of stop the cross. And that and Rudiger, I don't know what he was doing when he was trying to clear the ball. He just sort of set it up on like a half volley from McGoldrick to score. And I mean, David McGoldrick had scored no goals this season and he got two. So we're talking about doubling tallies for West, for Mikel Antonio. I mean, you can't even calculate this because he's gone from zero <laughs> it's goals. It's infinity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So he's gone to a brace from having no goals. Although, I mean, if you look, he's he's been uh, sort of come under quite a lot of criticism this season because before this match, I think he had an XG of 7 point five or seven point eight or something for the season, but he scored no goals. So he was come he had come under quite a bit of criticism, but he obviously scored the two goals and uh Ollie McBurney got the other and Chelsea nice I think deserved to lose. So uh, it was again a really good performance from Sheffield United. DJ, what's your take on the game? Yeah, you know, I agree with Harshaw with, you know, maybe fatigue played a part in the in the Chelsea squad. Like he was saying, their their passing between center backs especially was just sideways. And you're never going to break a team down if you don't make those risky passes in between lines into your midfielders. And everything just looks very lethargic. You know, every time William got the ball, he was trying to force things. I also believe that that's, that's a little factor of fatigue. But also, I believe that this game kind of exposed Chelsea as a young squad. You know, they still have some learning to do. I think a big thing that they've been missing this season is consistency. Obviously, when they're going, they're good. But obviously, after that run ends and they lose a game, they have to, like, pick themselves back up and find their consistency again. But I think it's just a learning curve for Chelsea, honestly. Um, I think, you know, maybe the next couple, two seasons, once once these young guys learn how to be consistent and, and Lampard learns who he needs to use at what times, it'll, they'll grow and they'll be a very good team. Uh, I actually wanted to bring up a point with you, Chris, and, and Sam. On one of the goals, the striker for Sheffield headed it. It was a hard header. It was near post, though. And the keeper didn't even touch it. So, you know, I kind of want your take on it, Chris, on whether you think keeper should be always covering near post. 
And yeah, it was a hard header for me, but I feel like, you know, he could at least try to save it. He didn't move. Just, he just looked like that. You know what I mean? And as a center back, you obviously can't let him get the header at the same time because it's near post. So, so let me know what you, what do you guys think about that? Sam, you go first. Yeah, I think it's been a bit of a, a recent theme. I'll comment on the defending uh, for Chelsea struggling to deal with, with balls into their box with crosses. Um, yeah, they seem to just not be tied enough to their men in the box. I think it's important um, once the ball goes into the box and, and strikers are in, in range, um, they're close to the goal and they can score. It's important to get to get tied to them and just be aware of they are. It's definitely difficult when uh, they're making movements off your shoulders. Um, but yeah, I think that's something that Chelsea kind of need to, to clean up a little bit on. Um, it was a really great header from uh, McBurney, kind of the power that he got with that was amazing. So I'll, I'll let you talk about uh, the goalkeeper. Well, as you know, Kep is a young keeper. Um, I'm, you know, I'm not crazy about his positioning generally. I like him to be a little higher up for situations where you have almost no reaction time and maybe he gets hit in the chest by the ball or is lucky and gets a hand on it. So um, I don't know. I think those near post headers like like at the six or seven, he certainly can't go out at that. So he didn't have a whole lot of reaction time. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, everyone knows how sensitive I am to goalkeepers should never get scored on the near post. Uh, it's like, great, but if you want a lot more in the far post, you can do that. But no, you don't hear any TV commentators saying, oh, well, that far post, he would have had it if he were a step or two out farther. So, um, the, uh, the debate will continue, uh, on, on that account. Um, yes, but, uh- if I can just, again, not to interrupt you, but yep. I, I was seeing some analysis on Twitter about this. And I think, so speaking about the reaction time that you talk about for, for goalkeepers and for Kepa especially, that he may not have had the reaction time. But I think he's got into a bad habit where he has a habit of sort of swinging his arms behind his back just when he's about to make or getting set. And that sort of takes away a few milliseconds for him to get his arms up sort of uh, to his side to be able to make the save. So again, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not a keeper, so I can't really talk about whether that would help. But from what I've seen on Twitter and a, a couple of goalkeeping coaches talk, talk about it, that for um, this goal as well as for the first goal where um, he got he sort of made the first save, but then uh, McGoldrick made the uh, scored the rebound. Uh, that his habit of swinging his arms behind his back sort of leaves him a little bit short of the reaction time that you're talking about. So maybe that's something he might need to work on, you know, in order to get the, get that extra sort of half a second. Yeah. It's, and, and that will, we'll, we'll move to the next thing. Cause I don't want this to digress, <laughs> but it's a trade-off because when you, when you have your arms back, you're loading up your legs and Kepa has a reputation for making pretty dramatic saves. And that's because he's, he's loading um, really well. So it's kind of a, you live by the sword, die by the sword uh, when you're making some of these tactical um, considerations here, but let's switch our our attention to the um, Liverpool Burnley game. Uh, as we know, Liverpool uh, has already wrapped up the league, but wanted to uh, to break some records. Um, but uh, Burnley um, stood clearly in the way. Liverpool had seventy one percent possession. They had twenty three shots compared to Burnley's six. They had nine shots on goal compared to two, uh, and the expected goals for Liverpool was 2.18 compared to Burnley's 0.45 expected goals. The final score was 1-1. Um, Sam, can you help us unpack the match? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listening to those stats, it's uh, hard to believe that Liverpool didn't win the, win the game at the end of the day, um, and it's really hard to say they didn't have a good performance, I think. They've set the bar so high this season. Um, they haven't lost Anfield in so long. The expectations are so high at this point. Yeah, I think Klopp will be frustrated. I think the team will be frustrated they didn't win. But it wasn't It wasn't a terrible performance. Um, I thought Fabinho has really been playing in top form since the restart. Um, as a defensive midfielder, some of the passes he's been creating and uh, kind of assisting with his, his top draw. Um, his ball to Robertson was great and obviously a great hit of goal. I thought Nick Pope was outstanding for Burnley. Um, he's got to be in the conversation to be to be the England number one, I think. Um, yeah, he kind of stood in his head. Liverpool created a lot of chances, but they've got to be a little more clinical at the end of the day. So, yeah, kind of frustrating. Um, as you said, they are chasing those records, but at the same time, I think they're uh, they obviously gave Curtis Jones a run. 
Um, Nico Williams started it as a preferred position of right back. So they're giving players the chance and they're experimenting a little bit. So yeah, I think with a with a pinch of salt at the end of the day, it's it's not a terrible result. Um, they'll be frustrated, but yeah, it was a good game and kind of I guess fair play to Nick Pope at the end of the day for keep for keeping them out. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought the Fabino Robertson that combination in the thirty fourth minute was very attractive, and then the um, uh, Takowski Rodriguez goal in the sixty ninth minute uh, was equally um, in- entertaining, but. I found what, what the most entertaining, entertaining was uh, Takawaski's open field tackle on Salah, which looked perfectly in place in the National Football League, but I don't know if it, it, it fit in place in the English Premier League. So uh, I, don't, I just don't know how you get away with a tackle like that. Um, could that have been a PK? Uh, any, any, any takers on that? Sam, um, what do you think? I'm, I'm only throwing this to you because obviously you play the position. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, uh, you kind of speak about the the Burnley uh, the Burnley goal. And I think that speaks to their style of play. They like to to get the ball forwards early. Um, they cause havoc in the box, and it was a it was a great finish finish by Jay Rodriguez. Um, yeah, then at the other end, they're they're combative. Um, they're solid defensively, and they're not going to give anything away. So, yeah, it was a pretty agricultural challenge. But you got to do what you got to do, right? I mean, Salah's not going to be happy about it. But um, at the end of the day, Burnley's come away with a point at Anfield. So. Well, I, I want to give Allison. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, Chris. Go Can ahead, you David. Just quickly, just mention Burnley's unbelievable form yeah. in 2020. I think they've only lost in the league to Norwich and Manchester City. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> strange one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm not Sean Dyke's biggest fan, but uh, I think he's done an unbelievable job of them this kind of the year for sure, and. Um, I mean, they've been really hard to break down. I, I watched them against West Ham and it, just infuriatingly difficult to break down. And uh, yeah, Nick Pope is, is superb in goal. But I think a lot of credit has to go to the players that are in, in front of him as well and the way they've been utilised to, 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 to frustrate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, they're the again, the system that Sam has referred to so much is you know, really a, a sight to behold. And, and I will tell you, Pope, uh, you, you have to have some great uh, personal performances like that to be able to um, keep a team like Liverpool at bay. And um, so I, I really enjoyed the Allison Pope highlight reel of which uh, Pope uh, certainly had a lot more opportunities to show his stuff. So, um, well, let's talk about the, um, the Tottenham uh, Arsenal uh, match where uh in, you know, Tottenham did dominate uh, possession at 63%. Um, David, help me unpack that game because uh, there were some pretty glaring elements uh, that that kind of showed themselves. Yeah, I think, again, one of the major talking points will be Lacazette's goal, which was incredible and is uh, definitely in a room of a shout for goal of the season. Um, he's hit that ball so well. But I thought Arsenal looked really good uh, first half, early in the second half, but they just didn't capitalise on how they were playing. And we obviously, we saw another defensive error from Arsenal lead to a goal. And um, all credit to him and Son because that was you know, a really cool finish. Um, but I was, I was really impressed with Ceballos. I thought he played very well, uh, dictating the pace of the game from midfield. I think he's getting better and better for Arsenal. So Arsenal fans will be pleased with how that one's going. Um, I mean, obviously there are concerns. I think the defence is a real worry. To see how Mustafi fell apart in the last 15 minutes tells you all you need to know about that player's mindset. And it was it was, it was tough to watch, to be honest with you. Um, but all credit to the Spurs. They, they look dangerous. And it was a classic Mourinho performance of, of sort of uh, frustrating the opposition, scraping through and, and then uh, capitalising late on. But I thought Spurs looked really good in the last 20 um, Harry Kane looks much better I think he had a 0.66 XG for the, the game something like that so I think um, he's certainly looking like the, the Harry Kane we, we know um, I, one, one little thing I will mention just as a talking point and it's potentially a bit of a hot take but we all saw how Lloris handled the Son situation uh, last week where they had that bust up and he was frustrated with Son essentially not being a team player he wasn't tracking back and today at 2-1, and listen, Harry Kane is, by I think, 
he's in it for himself a little bit as a player. And I don't think he's the best team player at all. But nevertheless, 2-1, Son's through on goal. He's got a defender in front of him. Kane's frees the side and he decides to take the shot on. And you could see how frustrated Harry Kane was with Son. Now, potentially that's because Kane wants to score. You could tell how much he wanted to score. But that was the second time in the last week where we've seen a Tottenham player get frustrated with Son over lack of teamwork. So that's potentially something to keep an eye on. And particularly with Steven Bergwijn starting to look uh, really good in the last sort of three or four games. Interesting. So uh, I will say the game started out lively, as they say, or energetic as the commentators. In the 16th minute, um, Chaka did go to Lacassette to finish at the 19th minute sun. You know, I wasn't ready to move from my seat after that. But then the second half kind of happened and uh and and of course we get a uh, a center back that ends up uh scoring uh, winning the game on a set piece uh dj what was your take on the game yeah i think like you said the first half was very intriguing you know it was very open it's kind of just like pickup soccer you know as soon as you get the ball go and attack and go at the defenders and then if they win it they're gonna go and attack but uh yeah i think it was very entertaining i think obviously our ears mistake on the goal was was pretty bad you know he just he just won the header, and then he had to get back on his feet. And then he won the ball again, took a bad touch that was too heavy, and that's how they ended up winning the ball. And like I said, got his you know crazy goal also off. So I think as a right back, it's tough. You know, I think as you as you, as a defender, you can't lose the ball in certain spots. And just like Arier, he lost it in that spot, and he got paid for it. I also think uh, obviously that the giveaway for Arsenal that's kind of been the story of their season. You know, attacking wise, they're so dangerous; they have so much potential, but. Defensively, they're just not good enough. And I think that's kind of been Arteta's struggle this season is to figure out who he puts back there, whether it's four or whether it's three. So I think, I think it finally showed, you know, obviously with Tottenham getting the goal. Um, and I also think on the other podcast, we've talked about strikers are learning to chip. Obviously, you see Son with his left foot, a little chip over the goalie. I think, I think that's the new trend now, Chris. You better watch out for these goalies, huh? Well, I'm very disappointed because uh... – you know, all of us goalkeepers have signed NDAs to not tell people the, uh, about <laughs> all they have to do is chip to score. They don't have to crush it. And uh, somebody's going to get sued is, is all I have to say about that. As far as your take on RAA, do you, what do you think his career, how his career is going to play out? I'm not sure. To be honest, though, I don't like him. <laughs> yeah. As a right back, he's not one of the top right backs that I try to model, whatever. Um, I think he's just an okay right back. If you look at the right backs in the world, you know, I definitely would have taken Trippier over him any day. Mm-hmm. You know, Trippier has progressively grown. Obviously, you saw him in the World Cup or the Euros, I mean, and and now you see him at Atletico. He's adapted to Simeone. He's played in Spain. You know, a lot of English players don't go over to Spain to play. So I think for me, our is just okay. And obviously, it, it shows sometimes. I think maybe he relies too much on his physicality throughout the game and mm-hmm. As a right back nowadays, the game's transforming, so it's really about your mental side of the game and how you think through the game. Um, yeah. yeah, that's my take on Aurier. I think I think the issue as well with Aurier is that t- I totally agree with what DJ said. And um, I, I think when you're looking at who Spurs can bring into that position, who's going to improve them, there's not a lot. And there's a lot of talk of Max Aaron's going there, which I think would make sense long term. But I don't see Max Aaron's coming in and being noticeably better than Aurier at right back just yet. Um, I think two or three years down the line, I, I'm not sure there will even be a comparison. But right now, I don't think that that's necessarily a fix. And the issue with this summer's transfer window is that you don't really want to sell players in this window because the Sane deal has broken the market, unfortunately. And you're going to see much lower transfer fees, particularly with COVID going on. So it, it's not a selling market. So you, you'd like to see Aurier stay there, I would think. And then it's like, well, if they don't go for Aaron's this summer, they're probably going to miss out on him. Mm-hmm. Some, someone will take Max Aaron's this summer. So it's a really difficult one. Can they loan him out and with an option to buy next season to someone and then get two right-backs in? But then Max Aaron's isn't going to move to Spurs being told that he's going to be the backup right-back. So it's a really difficult situation. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure there's a, an immediate fix for that position. I think a little bit similar with the left-back situation with, with Sessegnon and, and Ben Davies. So... It's, it's, it's a difficult one for Mourinho and for Spurs fans. And I'm, in, I'm interested to see what they do this summer. I think that's going to be one of the more interesting uh, transfer stories to look at, to see what they do. With, because I totally agree. Aurier is not going to be that long-term answer for him in that position. Well, super. 
Well, let's switch our attention to preview uh, the, the week. We've got a, just another amazing week of football coming up. Um, Sam, can you walk us through the Arsenal-Liverpool game that's going to be coming up on Wednesday? Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, it's a tough one to predict. I think we've already spoken a little bit about Arsenal. Um, you really don't know what, what they're going to show up with um, on any given day. I think it's two teams that really like to play positive and attacking football. Um, which I think probably plays into Liverpool's hands. I think they play a little bit better against those sort of more expansive teams than teams that are set up in kind of a deep, deeper block. Um, I think if, if Arsenal go with the back three again, they kind of the potential for Salah and Mane to get out those outside centre-backs in the channels with, with some space um, could really cause havoc. And I think, yeah, I don't know. Arteta is going to have a big decision to make kind of what, what formation he goes with. Um, I think Liverpool are going to be too good. I think just defensively, Arsenal... Just aren't up to par right now, as, as we've seen. Um, yeah, it could be changes. It's hard to hard to predict the lineups as well, kind of after Arsenal's results, but also we've seen Klopp um, rotate a little bit and kind of give chances to other players, different players. So it'll be interesting to, to see what he does. So yeah, it's a hard game to predict. I think it'll be entertaining in terms of two teams that are attacking, have a lot of quality attacking talent on play. But I think the difference in this, and we've seen with Liverpool all season, is kind of the goalkeeper and the defence. Um, they're a lot harder to score against, so I think that's going to shine through at the end of the day. And if you want a prediction, I'm going to go 3-1 uh, to the Reds. 3-1 to the – wait a minute. Both of them are Reds. <laughs> uh, DJ, well, I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think the score is going to be? I think, I think it would be an easy win for Liverpool if they play the right players. So I'm going to go with 2-0 Liverpool. Okay. Well, good. Well, I think it's going to be a, a goal fest. It's going to be three or four zero Liverpool, but that's just me. Uh, it's more a, I comment on Arsenal's back line than anything else. Um, so, Harshal, uh, walk us through what, what do we need to pay attention to for the Leicester-Sheffield United uh, match on Thursday? Um, I think, uh, again, we've seen, as we spoke earlier, Sheffield United come back with a bang, even though they weren't really at the races when uh, the game st- restarted again. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to see how Leicester um, try to break down their defense. Uh, I'm, and uh, I'm also really keen to see if Sheffield United can cause Leicester's defense some problems. Because I think there are still a couple of injury doubts in there. Uh, we saw Tristan uh, Fuchs play a trap back today ahead of Ben Chilwell. So I think he's an injury doubt. I don't, I, I'm not sure if he'll play that game as well. So, and I mean, the the Leicester Arsenal game told me that Leicester aren't really com- comfortable uh, keeping the ball as much. I mean, I know Brendan Rodgers is trying to get them to be a more expansive, more possession based, and a passing side, and they're getting there, but they're still not very comfortable there. They're, they still have moments where they don't know what to do with the ball, and I'm sure they'll have more of the ball in this game compared to Sheffield United. So, I, I, it'd be interesting to see if they can sort of manage the creativity to be able to break down Sheffield United's defense. And if you want a prediction, I think it'll be a close one. I think it'll be a one-all. I'm in agreement. One-all. Well, let's let's move on from there, uh, if, if if that's the case. Um, so, David, let's talk about West Ham uh, versus Watford. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought this had potential to be uh, one of those really boring games where teams just need uh, both teams just need a point. But with Villa winning today, it makes things a little bit more difficult for both teams. I think more so for Watford, who have got the more, the more difficult running out of uh, West Ham and Watford. So I think both teams are going to need to win that game. West Ham have a pretty dreadful record against Watford. So I think Watford will be confident going into this game. It's, it's an interesting one. I think West Ham have looked really good over the last three games, four games. And... We've seen the same thing from Watford. They've turned into a really good bit of form. They're coming, they're coming from behind now uh, and winning games, which is difficult uh, for <laughs> Stam to defend any kind of lead. So I'm expecting goals in this game, and I'm going to go. Uh, I'm going to go three to West Ham, and Antonio's going to score all three. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Harshal, do you have a different opinion? What do you have? What's your What's your forecast on the game? Um, I think to be honest. I know David's obviously saying that it's a must-win game, but I think even a draw would do for both teams. They'd go five points clear of Villa, depending, obviously, given the points at the moment. Um, yeah, I, 
it could be a bit of a goal fest in that sense as well. Like it's it's one of those where you don't really know how much or what can happen. So, um, yeah, I, I'm mostly in agreement with David, but just the fact that I think it might not be a must win. So, I hope that's true, Harshal. <laughs> well, give me a number. We, we still got to play. We still got to play United and, and Watford. So, as uh, yeah. United and Villa. So, I would rather be safe. Have this one up. Yeah, Villa. yeah. I don't want to have to win against it on the last game of the season. No, thank you. Nice. Uh, yeah. What do you, what, give me a number. Um, I'd stick with what David said. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Three, two. Come on. Come on, you are. All right. Well, let's shift our gear to the, uh, the Spurs-Leicester uh, matchup. Arshel, walk us through that. What do we need to look for? Again, um, just uh, I think Mourinho pulled off one of his sort of classic uh, – Heist in that sense in today's game, where played he played like a flat four four two, frustrated Arsenal, got the two goals, won the game. It won't be exactly the similar a similar sort of uh, game plan against Leicester because uh, I don't think they'd need to be that defensive or that sort of structured against Leicester. But at the same time, you've got Jamie Vardy, which you need to obviously guard against. So interesting game again. Both teams fighting for European places. Leicester obviously are suddenly back in the middle of things. Chelsea, United are uh, sort of, you know, in danger of uh, kicking Leicester out of the top four spot, which we all thought they had sort of sealed, you know. So, uh, I'd say Spurs might just edge this 1-2-1. They have, they they look like they've turned the corner. I wouldn't say they've turned the corner, but this, today's game will give them a lot of confidence. So, I think they might just be able to edge Leicester 2-1. Sam, what's your prediction on the game? Yeah, I kind of tend to agree with Harshell. Um, in the form, I think Spurs are figuring out how they look, look pretty good today, kind of effective. Um, Mourinho knows how to get a result. Leicester haven't been as, as convincing of late. So, yeah, I'll maybe go for a 1 0 Spurs win. How do you get into a, a striker with the, the Vardy profile? How do you get into his head and mess with him? I don't know. I mean, obviously, don't know Vardy, but I would say he's pretty, pretty unflappable. Um, his kind of rise, what he's seen, um, the leagues he's played in. I don't think he's too concerned about uh, about people getting in his head. Um, I think he's pretty focused. He plays off the cuff. You just have to be aware of where he is at all times. He's he's so electrically fast that um, you can't take a second off. So, yeah, to think. Yeah, my my sense so. is you don't want to trash talk him at all. And uh, when when yes. you uh, when you trip him, you uh, you help him up and ask him how his wife and kids are doing and all that, and, and see what you can do. So, uh, yeah, not someone you want to have on your bad side. Um, so, David, walk us through the Man City Arsenal game. That should be uh, Arsenal's got a full plate this week. Yeah, it's not it's not looking great for Arsenal, who defensively are very weak. I do think that if they continue the three four three system, I think that's the best system to play against City. City have lost twice against. Uh, a back three or back five when mm-hmm. they played against United this season on two occasions. So it, it, it works well against them. And I think what you often see with City is that they drive inside initially to bring the opposition narrow then hit the wider areas where they've got someone like De Bruyne who's got all this time and space. And as soon as they, the opposition starts to spread to, to press someone like De Bruyne, then they look for those pinpoint passes. Now, if you play with that back five, which will happen if you start with your, your 3 4 3, it will turn into a 5 3 2 or a 5 4 1. What you're going to see is a really narrow defense, very compact uh, horizontally. And De Bruyne is still going to find space out. He's going to drift down to that right side, no doubt. And he's still going to find space there, but not to the point where um, he, he would get as much space as he would against a back four, for example. But then we look at personnel-wise, we look at how the defence have done with mistake, mistakes in the last few games. I wouldn't be confident as an Arsenal fan. Uh, I've got a lot of friends who are Arsenal fans. I keep saying to them, just get through to the end of the season, rebuild this summer, start again. DJ, what's your take? Uh, I mean, you know I love Man City, but so I'm going to have to go with like, you know, 2-3-0. I don't think, honestly, I think Arsenal will frustrate Man City. To some degree, but I think at the end of the day, like like we've talked about, Arsenal defensively hasn't been good enough, and Man City is just coming off an easy win with with Sterling scoring goals off a falling header, not making the keeper. So, uh, you know, this confidence will be up. I think they'll punish them if, if Arsenal do make any mistakes, just like Tottenham did today. Nice. Well, let's have a quick look at our uh, strength of schedule here. Um, so, 
looks like as far as uh, folks that have the um, the most challenging schedule, um, have a look and see what Leicester has got a fair bit of work ahead of them uh, with respect to um, Sheffield United and Tottenham uh, and then Man U um, in their succession. Uh, as far And Chelsea's got its hands pretty full with Man U and Liverpool. As far as uh, some of the easiest... Uh, Arsenal's got uh, some work this week, and, and then they've got Aston Villa and Watford uh, uh, a bit later. Now, um, uh, next weekend is the uh, the FA Cup, so uh, those uh, games have been included just because of the uh, work rates that are going to be involved in there. Does anybody have any notes on kind of the top three spots, how things are going to play out? We'll be talking about Le- Leicester, Chelsea, we're talking about Leicester, Chelsea United, Chris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think Hulsh is going to jump in on that. But yeah, what I'd say is, I think if, you, if you've got Liverpool left to play and you've got City left to play right now, both of those teams have got little to play for other than pride, other than ensuring they finish the season strong. But mm-hmm. they don't have to win games. And they're going to be a lot more focused on player management than points. So if you've got Liverpool and City in, in your, your running, as Chelsea do, I wouldn't be as worried as I would have had those two teams slap bang in the middle of the season. So, um, although Chelsea's looked quite hard on paper, and I know they've had a, a couple of interesting results recently, I, I still think that both, I, I think United's one of the best teams in the league right now. So I think both those teams will get top four. I think Leicester will drop out. Interesting. I um, think that last game of the season, Leicester United's going to be unbelievable as well. Nice. Yeah, I was just going to jump in on that, that because of the... Um, Chelsea's loss to Sheffield United, it's back in Manchester United uh, hands, you know, in terms of if they win their next four games in the league, they're going to be in the Champions League. So, and obviously the the game they have against Chelsea is in the FA Cup and United have beaten Chelsea three times this season already. So, um, I'd be hopeful that they can win that and go on to the FA Cup final as well. And that will obviously give a bit of confidence for the last two games of the season. But United have been playing really well. We've spoken about this earlier in the podcast as well about you know, Mason Greenwood's coming on, the attacking sort of clicking. So I, I'd expect, if especially with tomorrow's game, if United win tomorrow's game, they'd, they'd really be able to put a lot of pressure on Chelsea and Leicester. And I, 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 I would agree with what David said. I think at the end of the season, we'll see Leicester probably come in fifth and Chelsea and United be in third and fourth. Very good. Well, let's have a quick look down at, at in the relegation zone, which seems to be getting more and more clear on um you know West Ham and Watford are not completely out of the uh the picture yet but I'm sorry out of the zone yet but the fact that Bournemouth has got to play Leicester and and City those are just those are hard hard things to uh to get sorted out to get past here in terms of being able to jump up uh you know three or four points up on there uh and you know, Aston Villa does seem like it has a bit of an easier schedule. Uh, and Watford still has is going to have its hands full. And I think you might be right, David, that existential threat is going to be that uh, the Watford-West Ham game. But it could be a 1-1. They walk away from there and, and, and things kind of stay, the table stays where it is at, uh, by the end of the season. Yeah, I need to. I need to quickly jump in and apologize, Chris, because I totally misread the uh, <laughs> this slide above. I didn't realize that we were looking at those. Okay, I'm with you now. Let's ignore my Chelsea comment, all right? But we'll go with what. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think I, there. I'd I like to be safe before the United game because I think that United could put a lot um, past West Ham, and I don't want to be going into that. But again, having to win, having just lost three or four 0 I don't mm-hmm. think that's any good. Uh, I think Brighton we can discount. I think Brighton is safe. Um, as I said Watford got a really difficult running and that's why I think this weekend against West Ham is a must win for them because they've got City and Arsenal which is just a nightmare last two so if we're looking at Bournemouth and we're looking at Villa after Villa winning today I think Villa are the more likely to stay up out of the two I do think Bournemouth sadly are probably gone sorry Bournemouth fans mm-hmm. uh, I just don't see them doing it um, but yeah, it's interesting to see because we're, we're recording this before we've seen the Bournemouth uh, game this evening so that right. can change but yeah, that, so, that Villa, Villa running is equally tough. But at the same time, Everton, Arsenal, they could conceivably get a result. And I could see them beating West Ham in the last game of the season. So 
All right. Sorry, uh, I just want to jump in. I mean, I know we're recording at, as the game is going on, so it's half time in the Leicester Burnmouth game. Leicester leading one nil. Um, Jamie Wari scored, so I think he's sort of going to get the golden boot. He's on twenty four now, I think. So he's online on on absolute fire right now, and he'll probably be the top scorer. But um, talking about Burnmouth, yeah, I think if they, they're down a goal right now, I don't really see them coming back. So. They'd be six points behind uh, West Ham and Watford by the time this weekend's games end. So it doesn't look too good for Burnham. Right. Well, good. Well, let's turn our attention to kind of interesting thoughts we've got. We've actually actually learned from this week and what we might be looking for for next week. DJ, why don't you start us off on that? What What do you What really did you walk away with from last week's results? And then what are things you're kind of looking for this next week? Uh, I think the main things that hit me was, one, I was really impressed with Sheffield. You know, I didn't really watch them, you know, the, throughout the season so far, but watching them this week and, and the way they're playing, I'm really interested in see how they go, how they do, and I'm definitely going to tune into them. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I'm interested to see Chelsea. You know, I, I like their team. I like the young guys, like Lampard's system and what he's trying to do with that team and to see how they adapt and learn from, from matches they lose or tie and points they give up. Uh, last interesting thing for me is Sterling's hat-trick goal. Third goal, obviously, that was crazy. He just He's kind of just falling over. The ball bounces up, hits him on his head, and goes through the keeper's legs. Um, you know, I think we blame that on the keeper, right, Chris? <laughs> yeah, so that, 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 I think that was, that was really funny to cool and cool to see this past week. Nice. Harshell, what, what, were, what were some of the thoughts you had for last week and what you're looking for this next week? Right, so I've got a couple of things I want to talk about. First up... Um, since we haven't really spoken too much about Manchester United on today's episode, I think uh, so. I think you know, I think it was last week or maybe the week before that. But basically, in the last sort of week or ten days, United have given a new contract to Nemanja Matic till twenty twenty three. I maybe disagree with the length of the contract, but I think it's a good idea to extend his deal. I think since since it was expiring at the end of this season or maybe next season, I'm not too sure. But basically, the point is that he's. Uh, sort of had a real resurgence in terms of uh, his form and his ability to play in the Premier League. I, for one, and I think a lot of people were completely writing him off earlier in the season. He'd been, he had been poor towards the back end of last season and this season and the beginning of this season. Um, but he's really come and sort of taken Fred's spot. Fred was um, starting for United all throughout the season because of Pogba's injuries as well. But since Pogba's come back and now we have, and Matic is back as well, and that's the sort of double pivot that United have played in all of their matches um, since the restart. Uh, and uh, I, th- I think the way in which United are setting up right now is really suiting Matic because when in possession, he drops into the, de- into the defense, he forms a back three with Lindelof and Maguire. And that allows Pogba to get up higher up the pitch and sort of take charge of things in the middle third and also allows Bruno Fernandes to drop deep if required. But he then is able to, Fernandez is then able to sort of link play between the forwards and Pogba. Mm-hmm. And even otherwise, from a defensive point of view, he's done really well. He screens the defense really well. He, he gets his angles right. He gets, he's really good at intercepting the ball. So even though he has a lot of ground to cover, since he's the sort of sole defensive pivot, he does, he gets his angles right and he's able to do that job so far. But I want to see how he does that Chelsea game in the FA Cup. It will be interesting because Chelsea have the sort of players who could trouble him who play in that sort of pocket of space and in the half spaces. So that'll be interesting for me to watch. And cool. um, there's another topic I want to talk about when I'd like to get David on this with regard to Jorginho at Chelsea because there's been a lot of debate about Jorginho raging ever since the restart. He was, he was, I think he had the second or third highest minutes for Chelsea this season before the restart. And then after the restart, he's barely played. I think yesterday was the first game he started and the game before that at Palace, he came on for 20 minutes or so when Gilmore got injured, when Billy Gilmore got injured. He, he'd not featured before that. And that there's been a real debate among Chelsea fans and even Premier League fans in general about whether Jorginho should be playing for Chelsea or not and whether he has a future at the club. And I'll, I'll give my thought on that as well, but I'd like to hear what David has to say about that. Yeah, I think, I think it's really reactionary to, to say that Gilmore should be starting over Jorginho. I think it's just not not a good take. Uh, I think Gilmore's got a lot of potential, but he needs a lot of time to to find himself as a player. Jorginho is an incredibly experienced uh, holding midfielder. What you what you need, Jorginho, is you. I, I think 
Chelsea want to sign Declan Rice from West Ham, and a lot of Chelsea fans seem to think that they'd play him as a centre back, which I think would be a waste. I think you can, I mean, Jorginho is actually pretty good defensively, and I think that he's potentially not the most mobile player and, and isn't seen as that kind of player because of the way he plays. But if you put someone next to him who is just a, a real ball winning midfielder, that's going to allow him to play to the best of his ability. And um, they have ball winners. I mean, Ngolo Kante is an incredible ball winner, but he's he's so much more than that. He's a, he's a I think you might see this going off topic a little bit, but you might see Kante move on and just be this incredibly press, like successful pressing midfielder and people will be going, well, why weren't Chelsea using him like that? And to an extent, they have been. But um, to go back to the Jorginho point, I think that he needs support. I think Chelsea right now aren't playing their best football and play, people are going, oh yeah, well, Vili Gilmore should be coming in for Jorginho in this place. And it's like... Hold on a second. Okay, let's have a look at your results, how you're playing. And um, but for me, Jorginho is absolutely in their best 11. And he's not a player that I would build my team around like Sarri wanted to do with him. But he's certainly in that best 11. And I think you can get more out of him by putting players next to him that are going to bring that out. What do you think, Harsha? Yeah, I agree with almost all of that. I mean, uh, you've, you've, I've, had, I've seen like a, a friend of mine, the Chelsea fan, and he agrees with this as well. But uh, otherwise, on Twitter, I've seen people slate Jorginho for his lack of defensive ability and because he's not physical. And that sort of came off uh, also from the Chelsea-Sheffield United game where McGoldrick was sort of able to shrug him off and go on the run. And then obviously, all the other sort of events led to the goal uh, being scored. But I mean, Gilmore's what, five foot four, five foot five? He's not going to be able, he wouldn't have been able to stop McGoldrick either, right? So if you're looking for physical uh, sort of attributes, in that defensive midfield position, there's no case to be made for Gilmore over Jorginho because, if anything, he's even more physically um, sort of he's he's nowhere uh, sort of more dominant physically than Jorginho is. And in terms of ball uh, ability on the ball, there's no comparison because, as you said, Jorginho is vastly more experienced. He's he's and he's much he's in, he's if you look into the numbers, he progresses the ball really well. He gets a lot of progressive passes. He's got a lot of progressive passing done this season for Chelsea. So. There is some criticism in the sense that he might slow the tempo of the game down at times. And that maybe that's a problem with Chelsea, I think, because even in the game against Sheffield United, they were passing along the back quite a lot, as DJ said when we were talking about that game as well. And that's not really down to Jorginho as much as to the system that Lampard's playing and the players he's got on the pitch. So, yeah, it's just it's been a baffling sort of conversation when I've seen Chelsea fans saying that Billy Gilmore should be starting. And, and he's out for the season now and probably might miss the start of next season as well. So that's that sort of comparison or that sort of uh, competition isn't, isn't going to happen for a while now. But I, for one, think that Chelsea, I mean, if they do end up selling him this season uh, at the, this in the summer window, which a lot of people think might happen, it'd be a huge waste because he's, he he's really good at what he does. And as you said, if you put the right players around him, he can really help Chelsea get to where they want to well, be. Well, seems like Serie A has done a great job of buying... Uh, very, very good value in the in the EPL this last year. So Georgino may be returning back to that. So, um, so Sam, what 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 are the things that you were struck by this week, and look, we'll look for next week? Yeah, I'm going to give some uh, love to my defenders. I thought um, John Egan had a great uh, injury time winner. It's a huge hit. I mean, Willie Bolly is a uh, is a giant, and he's amazing in the air. So I think that really emphasizes how good of that that hit it was. Um, Aldo Ronaldo too. I mean, us defenders don't get so much love all the time, so I thought that was cool to see. Um, looking forward, I just think we're into that that t- that phase of the season where it's just going to become so unpredictable. I think we're going to see some some really crazy results. Um, you look at the motivation of different teams right now. Liverpool obviously have been the best team in the league throughout the season, but what are they playing for at this point? Um, it's tough. I mean, there's some some teams in the middle of the table that kind of motivation might also be be uh, be lacking. Um, and then the teams at the bottom of the, the table are fighting for their lives. So I think we could see some interesting results and it's going to make for some, some entertaining games. So I'm looking forward to, to watching this week. Yeah. Well, I'm going to say this last week, I was struck by how much value <laughs> goalkeepers bring to, uh, to the teams here. Uh, there were some real breakout performances, I, I, I felt like. So uh, I'm going to continue to make the argument that uh, – goalkeepers should make as much as the best strikers uh so um uh and and really i thought pope's uh uh showing was really just fantastic what a breath of fresh air and i'm going to be honest with you i think martinez 
demonstrated that he's both great as a shot stopper uh, as well as uh, uh, his footwork is really you guess what he's from Argentina you know he, he came up through Independiente I mean that's that's you would expect that to happen and uh, you know I, I really wonder if we're going to be talking about him in the same terms as a uh, as an Allison and Ederson going forward uh, he's got he's got the athleticism of of an Ederson. Uh, and I think he's got some outstanding judgment. Uh, you know, there was a complaint, uh, by the TV commentator about how he came out and got stuck in no man's land on a cane where Kane tried to chip over him. And of course, Kane hits it over the goal and it's like, okay, he went into no man's land, but he caused the striker to do something he didn't want to do. And he did not score to me. That's a good play. That's not a bad play. Um, so it can be interesting to see, uh, if, if, um, uh, how much goalkeepers play in the role because I think there were some suspect back lines this last week with a couple teams and um, there was some really good play there and I'm fascinated to see the Sheffield United like you guys said earlier very candidly I haven't watched a ton of them um, and I'm just so impressed with the back to basics working in against teams that have payrolls much larger much higher pedigrees so um, I'm just really looking forward to the next two weeks. So, gentlemen, that wraps up our podcast for today. We'd like to thank Total Football Analysis. They are the world's largest open source soccer analyst community. Please visit www.totalfootballanalysis.com. Join us for our next Football Thinking Fans podcast. For now, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao.